0: Flywheel, your number one source for everything that's happening in Frax, DeFi and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, from all the active developments to active players, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave. I'm here with Capital K and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And kid, this was a really good episode we got going on with uh the Umami team, uh, all about real yield, and you know, growing up and kind of the evolution of a DeFi protocol from uh, anon dgens to, uh, okay, how do we scale this up to 100 million TBL to even like a billion TBL as a protocol? Like, what do you think, dude? I think the team has the gun right heads on the right shoulders because
1: the the way they're kind of positioning their product, the way they're even thinking about their distribution strategies. it's it's very, very mature and very sobering. And it's very clear that they have the proper leadership in place to kind of get them there, especially with all the relationship and the connections they've been building. And I love how well well Lex articulated kind of the vision and the market he really wants to go after and with a clearly laid out product strategy plan to get there, it was a good episode. I think we should have more of these, you know, like Frax adjacent projects on.
0: I agree. Um, I think in the future, Flywheel is going to go more, you know, subject focused. Definitely, you know, keep the focus on Frax and how Frax can relate to these projects. So I think it's important to have these conversations and keep Frax in people's heads. You know, I'll, I'll keep doing that. But it's important to be aware of other developments that are happening on chain and happening in DeFi, especially with Umami because what they're doing is really important and like all like the little tidbits of alpha, like, I think this might've been the most alpha filled episode we've ever filmed, <laughs> like Dude, with everything yeah. he was dropping. <laughs> Cause I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we won't let, uh, you guys wait any longer. We'll get this going. Um, don't forget to subscribe to us, uh, on YouTube, flywheel pod. Uh, we almost have 500 subscribers, which is really dope. Uh, don't forget to, uh, follow up on oof, oof. Yeah. Less than three months. Um, and uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and on Telegram at Pod. We're so close to a thousand followers. Don't forget to follow me at DeFiDave22. And follow me at zero X capital underscore K. And let's get this episode started. All right, here we have Alex, uh, otherwise known as DeFi Alpha, the founder of Umami Finance. And Lucas, uh, who goes by usually Mr. Grumpy Pants, He's a community manager for Umami. <laughs> He's on with us. We have a very special episode cooking up, and uh, it's great to have you guys. Thanks for joining. Yeah, we're really happy to be here.
2: Definitely. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, and of course, we we have my co-host, Capital K Kit, in the building. <laughs> right here. Yep. And uh, yeah, um, this episode will be all about real yield. Where to find that sweet, sweet yield that's sustainable, long-lasting, and long-term. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, so it. yeah, give us give us both of you guys your background. Like how did you get to DeFi and how did Umami start? Sure.
3: I'll I'll share mine first and then uh, we can we can hear from Lucas as well. So um yeah, my background is is I think somewhat unique for this space. I spent um the better part of seven years in financial journalism for so that that was most of my career. Um, I covered mergers and acquisitions, private equity and VC and in, in both, uh, tech and healthcare. So I, you know, I had sort of general exposure, I think, to, to a lot of things that have proved, proven really useful in DeFi. Um, but honestly, I, I really didn't get, uh, heavily into DeFi until COVID. I was working from home and I was bored out of my mind and I started, uh, just, just poking around in Web three more than I had done before. Um, and it, it was really. When I was doing that, that I discovered Umami, um, I was not one of the founding members in the sense that there was a group of people who were all anonymous, uh, who preceded me, who actually built the protocol. Um, I was, I was a team member and, you know, at the time that I joined, this was sort of October, November, 2021. It was an own fork. I, I'm not sure if you know, most listeners are familiar with what that is, but it's sort of uh, the long and short of it is that it's the exact opposite of everything that we are now and, and what we stand for now. <laughs> um And, you know, again, I, I think for me, it, it really helped that I came from a TradFi background. You know, I'd spent a lot of time kind of learning to think about value creation in a very specific way. Um, and, you know, I could. I remember sort of sensing that, you know, the, the tokenomics here of, you know, whether it's Lindestow itself or any of the forks don't make any sense. Um, so when that market crashed, right. And that was before the broader crypto crash that all these own forks blew up. Um, a lot of the folks left sort of, you know, different at different times. And I had a chance to become the project lead. And that's when we just kind of pivoted to who we are today. Right. And I can share a
0: little bit more of that later on, but that hopefully is helpful background. Wasn't. I remember when you guys were in Ohm Fork. I remember seeing like Arby's and Chems around mm-hmm. and all like in the food court. Yes. Like I was, I was like, this is a DJ's paradise right here. This is where I'm going to go get my tendies. Yeah. No, no. I mean, honestly,
3: I love, like, I love the culture from back then. And I think, you know, Grumpy is, um, Lucas, you're probably more of an OG than me. Do you want to share a little <laughs> bit of your, your background? You've been in DeFi for a long time too.
2: Yeah, definitely. So mine, mine's probably the exact opposite of of as <laughs> I probably got into crypto when I was in high school. I mean, straight out of high school, um, just being a D-gen almost. I was working a minimum wage job, just kind of hanging out, but I never really broke into, like, the trad, trad fi world or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I really got involved in Umami at the start when it was um, Z2O, actually, when it was a, the own fork. Um, but, yeah, really close in the community. Um, and then eventually when, when DeFi kind of took the reins... Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was kind of just an obvious choice as community manager and then such public relations almost because mm-hmm. I was so in tune with the community side of things. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So Lex, you're from a TradFi background and Lucas, you're a DeFi native. I'm also DeFi native as well. So like, what are some things you notice about the other side? Like, Lex, like, what do you think? What do you notice about DeFi native people? <laughs> that, that's a you good know? question. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. it's
3: interesting because I, I suppose you can say I'm overall TradFi, but, you know, I never, it's not like I managed a TradFi or Web2 company, right? So my my first time at sort of my current role as CEO is um, Web3. So I do feel like I'm a little bit of a hybrid at this point. But yeah, I think that, you know, I'll be actually very curious to hear Lucas's perspective because he was sort of on, you know, the the full <laughs> Web3 side of this. But uh you know i think web3 individuals and i include myself in this were you know very autonomous by nature right that's why we gravitate to DeFi. um we don't necessarily play well in the sandbox together in a very at least not in a very structured way right and i think that's you know both the beauty of of DeFi. it's what attracted it to me um i didn't want to continue working in a corporate environment but it can also be a real challenge and, you know, I've done my best and there have been some, you know, bumps in the road to, you know, try and manage a transition to being a bit more focused, you know, I don't want to say more corporate, but having more traditional startup structure without kind of losing our identity and core values. Um, and actually I'd love to hear Luke's perspective because he was along for the ride, pure web three.
2: Yeah, I mean with with me not even breaking into to any kind of corporate job or anything like that, it, it's been a real 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 learning experience. I mean, I've gone from pretty much an unorganized college kid to to working a a real job, keeping priorities, um mm-hmm. and, uh, keeping a full calendar. I mean, we're definitely busy on a day-to-day basis and these guys have taught me so much.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, do you
3: agree with my general thesis, Lucas? I mean, you were there with me, right? There, was, uh, there were some rough spots in, in transition. But I, God, I remember, when, remember when we tried to get everyone to go on to Slack. Uh, <laughs> to how that went.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, it was a huge change just from moving the team comms from the bottom of the Discord and your private channels to, to right. a whole different Slack, Slack thing. I mean, it was, it was definitely a change. Uh, a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but some people definitely kind of resisted. But we got there eventually. Everybody got there
3: yeah and you know what i'll just share sort of briefly on that i i don't want to give sort of the you know false impression that umami's values are sort of about the corporatization of of web3 so you know we made a transition to slack because discord wasn't cutting it if there were a web3 solution like urban you know where there was you know a level of privacy right Yeah. yeah if we could have if Erbit was at the point where we could have adapted it to the use cases we were getting from Slack, we would have much preferred that. Right. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the concept of what a web three company looks like, um, you know, especially if it is focused on DeFi, not CFI, is still very much in, in development and I'm kind of excited to see what, what shape it takes.
0: Yeah. It's still forming, like things are becoming mm-hmm. more decentralized. I like to think of stable coins in the same way they exist on the yes. spectrum of, uh, centralized like usdc and
2: mm-hmm. then you
0: have completely decentralized and then you have somewhere in the middle where it's like but everyone's working towards that final goal of like being as decentralized as possible and eventually like icb being off the us dollar and like its own independent reserve asset but same thing with comms platforms which are so vital and important because that's basically the meeting rooms and like meeting houses that you know yeah. we all populate and like those are clearly centralized there isn't a real decentralized option yet and, um, like, I mean, it's funny, I learned about urban at the same time I got into Bitcoin and crypto. I at the same time I like took the pill, like back in like July, 2017, and there was like, oh, here's this urban meetup. <laughs> and I actually, in Long Beach, I remember going, I'm like, well, what is this world?
3: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, one, one small thing I'll share though, this is just sort of a funny observation that we've kind of picked up along the way. <laughs> I will say that in web three, and I'm guilty of this as well, we, we often forget that You know, there are more mechanisms than just protocol level decentralization to safeguard Mm -hmm. things like privacy. Right. So like once we brought, we, everyone was freaked out myself, including included about Slack, and this is actually also something that when I worked as a journalist, the, uh, the organization I I worked there as it was also freaked out about because of course they could get subpoenaed and then, you know, um, regulatory agencies could access all of their conversations. Um, when we brought on a legal advisor, he mentioned, you know, that you can create channels that are, you know, confidential by virtue of attorney point client client privilege and have, you know, NDAs protecting them. Right. Like there are, in other words, there are these other levers that, uh, you know, we pulled all along to not be so, um, kind of concerned about the privacy element beyond, uh, beyond just decentralization. But I, I think that that's still sort of something that Web3 is figuring out.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're right. so,
1: um, so so, so, um, prior to this, I, I used to work at a DeFi fund and the, the way we kind of operated was we had, we use signal as the main form of communication. And then we just have like multiple signal group chats across the board yeah. to act as each channel. So we try to slackify right. signal. And then our, our defense against anything is that there is going to be a four week timer on all of these group chats. So if a task doesn't get done in four mm-hmm. weeks, it's done so right
3: that's pretty airtight i'll give you
0: that yeah um yeah i'm just a telegram maxing honestly yeah i've been using telegrams yeah and like before that my like first startup we were in facebook groups like that's (laughs) right you told me
1: that yeah a a, a funny story i want to share as well well, going from like a traditional background like lex I'm, i'm much more like you i used to work in a private wealth management then at a, you know, VC fund, that's much more, uh, web to consumer mobile apps, consumer packaged goods type. And then, you know, moving into crypto. And I noticed that a lot of these projects, they really want to like redefine the wheel and like reinvent the the, mm-hmm. the wheel on like, you know, there are certain corporate structures or rather some corporate practices that are, you know, been battle tested for decades and it kind of works you yes. know, at the end of the day it's all human collaboration and, you know. Moloch doesn't discriminate between, oh, you were a, a corporate, <laughs> then I'm, I'm not going to message you. But if you're yeah. down, I'm going to totally message you. Like, no, Moloch messes everybody. It's an equal yep. opportunity, that's you know, well fucker-upper. Up. So, like, you know, learn <laughs> right. from both sides. It's going to be flexible. You know, that's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah, but it exactly. To dive yeah. back into we, DeFi, we be
3: like, ourselves too if we uh, thought, if we thought that, uh, web three, uh, projects would not become part of Moloch themselves at some point, right. And in a lot of cases. So yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. Exactly. Right. We never and, get um, rid of
0: Moloch, I, like, only yeah, push them in the background. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, yeah, he uh, always to, head
1: to dive back into the, the DeFi, uh, content. I do want to ask, like, I mean, going from say, you know, Ethereum all the way down the rabbit hole to something like umami or even own forks in general. Like, what was that path like? Uh, I I'd love to hear from from yeah. Lucas first and, and then the uh, legs after. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, I mean, me, I, I, I personally, I mean, I don't know how f- too familiar you guys are with, um, Arbitrum, but I mean, I, I got into everything just cause of NFTs. I mean, that was really my, my foreground, um, mm-hmm. back a year or two ago, maybe three years ago, even I mean, I was back then, um but yeah that's how i got into it and then arbitrum just seemed like a, a a make sense place for nfts i mean why why spend so much gas on on the mainnet when you can just go down to arbitrum and spend maybe 10 15 cents on on minting an nft or buying or selling one so yeah i mean that that's just really how i found myself in the arbitrum and then umami i mean <laughs> I think if you were early days in the arbitrum, you definitely know what Arbis Z two O and uh and are. I mean, you had to have known that there back then.
0: <laughs> yep. So yeah. RB nine, yeah. right? A hundred percent, RB nine. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> That's too good. Yep. How about you, Lex? Um, I
3: mean, for me, I I think. In part, because I started to get involved in DeFi, um, you know, sort of COVID and post COVID that I already had a sense of being kind of late. And, you know, there was this, you know, general feeling that, you know, maybe the mainnet DeFi ecosystem had already peaked, at least from a valuation perspective. I remember I had sort of been reading about Olympus DAO. I found it interesting, but again, it felt like, um, if I'm reading about that, I'm sorry, I'm probably late to that. So, you know, I was... I kind of ended up uh, in, in Arbitrum because I was sort of chasing, um, you know, places where, where things hadn't been, you know, completely filled out yet. And then, you know, the irony was that Arbitrum was probably about, you know, nine months away from actually having its moment by by the time I got there. But
0: Wait, you know, did we read smart. the same Missouri article? Was it by Ryan Watkins? Probably, yeah. The, yeah, they're, that they're was... Like
3: one on olympus Day. yeah
0: i remember it because i remember reading one when olympus first came out it was just all about mm-hmm. stable coins it was like mm-hmm. centralized ones decentralized ones and like the you know the independent free floating ones and it mentioned like olympus and float and i, I remember reading that and that came out like right when olympus launched um, <laughs> and it's like interesting to think like the journey it took from there yeah I and know. like and like what it what it started for better or for worse Got
1: it. So, yeah. So, so Lucas started with NFTs and in seek of cheaper gas, he found himself on RB. Mm-hmm. Lex, in search of, you know, newer frontiers, also <laughs> found himself in RB. Uh, that's super yep. cool, man. That's super cool.
0: Yeah. I um, My question is like, yeah. what's your reflection on like the whole Olympus craze and Olympus forks and that whole Olympus model? Like, and like, w- w- What made you, what was the ultimate catalyst Mm -hmm. for you guys to decide to like, go towards like this really old path? Like, so I'll I'll share a
3: few, I'll share a few initial thoughts on that because obviously as you might imagine, we had to think about that pretty deeply over the course of our pivot, um, look that the premise of Olympus Dow, and we all sort of remember the, the, the language that was used was that this was going to become sort of a decentralized reserve currency. And it's really important because if you're using the, you know, concept of a reserve currency as a comp, then the notion of, you know, an own token not having any mechanism for unlocking, you know, protocol revenue is completely intuitive. The notion of having, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in DAI sitting in, you know, um, on your treasury balance sheet, not necessarily even being, you know, deployed anywhere is also reasonable, right? If you're thinking of this as sort of a you know, semi-backed, um, you know, reserve currency for DeFi. And I think that, you know, it was within that framework that some of the original sort of features of Ohm's tokenomics made made sense. Right. Um, and, you know, by the way, for those who don't follow Ohm, right. It's just, it, it was, it is essentially a classic Ponzi, right? Just in the purest sense, you stake Olympus Dow in order to accumulate more of, um, I'm sorry, you stake the Ohm token in order to accumulate more Ohm. That was the model at the time, at least. Um, and, you know, initially the, the APY, the advertised return was, you know, what was it hundreds of thousands of, of percent, or, you know, at least tens of thousands of percent. So that was all in the data. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the moment that you sort of, um, question, right. The moment you question this concept of like, is this really a reserve currency? And is that sort of a viable model for a project? Then the entire edifice collapses in front of you because it's like, well, you're not deploying, you know, the treasure to any useful end and you know, you're only rewarded and more of the same, you know, native token just being emitted endlessly. That's a disaster. Um, and, you know, we certainly realized for Umami that, you know, look, it's questionable whether only DAO is going to ever become in a reserve currency. There's certainly not going to be 50 reserve currencies, one for every fork right on every chain. Um, and so for us, you know, it was clear that. Those tokenomics were, like I said earlier, the exact opposite of what would actually be desirable, right? And I think that one of the things that informed me a lot, um, when I took over as project lead was the fact that, you know, on a certain, I was relatively new to DeFi and I was just a retail investor, right? Even though, you know, I kind of worked tangentially at TradFi. I was coming, kind of, I was, I was aiming in as a retail investor and I had TradFi sensibilities, like a lot of people do. And I was looking for, you know, projects where the tokenomics made, made sense, right, based on the kind of cognitive frameworks you pick up thinking about fixed income and equities, right? Um, and so when we started really thinking about what would be, uh, this is kind of how Umami's current tokenomic structure developed, um, you know, when we, when we started asking ourselves, certainly when I started asking myself sort of what would an ideal Token, tokenomic structure be after feeling like I've gotten burned on many ponzi's or just been unable to even assess the value of a token. Um, you know, some of the key thoughts were, well, let's not have any emissions whatsoever, right? Emissions just inherently make me feel like any given unit of, you know, that project token is less appealing. Um, and, you know, it makes me feel sort of very un, insecure in terms of, you know, is, is whatever value I have going to last. And then, you know, obviously this notion of, can't you just straightforwardly give me as a staker cut of protocol revenues instead of all these, these end arounds, um, you know, is sort of also, um, you know, very obvious. So what emerged for us was kind of just this you know, very, you know, purposefully simple, right? Sort of an un- unapologetically mid, if you will, um, you know, kind of framework of we're gonna have a max total supply of 1 million tokens, which is never gonna be more. So going can be any emissions and there is going to be, you know, every token is gonna to be a share of protocol revenue in ETH. And we're just gonna to commit to 50%, which, you know, there was no, you know, really deep thought, except that that was a nice clean number that, you know, will help people, you know, very transparently assess the value of the token. And so that's, again, if you're familiar with Ohm, sort of as opposite as possible, but again, if, if. And if you kind of abandon the notion of, you know, reserve currency as the ideal for a project, and you think about a project as something that builds something that generates value, um, then the tokenomics I described are, you know, very, very clear and and
0: appealing, right. For getting a claim on that value. So like the long story short is you're an own it, And then when everything was said and done, you were, you guys were like, What's the exact opposite of O in like tokenomic structure? Yes.
3: Yeah. What's the opposite of O and what's just the simplest and most straightforward? Simplest.
0: Thing I, I think that's yep. the key there is simple. I think like a lot yep. of problems that projects trade for themselves is they make things too complicated, whether it's the language the projects use or the hoops that like have to be done is like, oh, like stake here, LP there, this and that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. even me as an experienced like DeFi user, I've like, face the same problem and then you have all these approvals which ex- it, you know expands like your risk and whatnot yeah, really? like it's like the sim i think there's like a certain beauty and certain elegance and that certain and actually definitely utility when it comes to simplicity yes. so i think like that's definitely the right route to go down um lucas like what are your thoughts on the transition from a uh, own forks to real yield
2: yeah, so um, uh, for better or worse, I actually wasn't wasn't too um familiar with uh, Ohmforks at the time. I was kind of just doing the the nature of myself and, and degening into things um, when I saw them. So that's how I kind of as is the nature of a hundred percent always. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how I kind of got um found umami. I mean, the to me as as an investor, I, I mean, I really only got in just because it, it, it was, it was fine. I mean, that's what everybody was doing on Arbitrum at the time. Um, uh, but it, the real yield that we pay out now is definitely, definitely, definitely more attractive.
0: Yeah. And so for our viewers at home, uh, what is real yield? This has been a trend that has bubbled up at the beginning of the summer in your discords and now has uh spread through Twitter. Um, can you give a, uh, like, what's your take on that? Sure.
3: Um so yeah, we actually I just confirmed today in response to a to a Twitter thread that it was Lucas who coined yeah. the phrase real yield, right? In oh. in a dialogue that he and I were having in our Discord with some of our community members, right? And um I you could probably sort of say it better than me, but but Grumpy, do you have or Lucas, sorry, his uh, Discord uh, <laughs> handle is Grumpy for those who don't know. Um <laughs> but uh Lucas, do can you give sort of some context about what made that sort of an appealing way to try and describe our value prop to the community?
2: Yeah, I, I, just to give just to give everybody, I mean, it's not a new concept for Mommy. We've been paying out um, real yield for with with ETH for six months now. I think so. It, it wasn't a real or a new concept for Mommy per se, but just to give everybody some background, it was um, it was one of the nights after old old Duquan went off and old ust kind of explosion everybody was kind of shooting the shit in our discord talking about it Mm -hmm. and stuff and and we were kind of comparing umami to what that scenario was and it kind of just popped up and made perfect sense i mean real yield there's no really better way better way to put it
0: Mm -hmm.
3: yeah and actually i think that again it's sort of like the way we're describing our tokenomics as opposed to olympic styles right so you know umami's zero emissions approach, you know, as the opposite of Ponsu, it's, it's real yield also kind of is the opposite of, of Ponsu yield. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, again, when, when that phrase was first used, you know, like Grumpy said, we were shooting the shit and we were just trying to kind of, you know, articulate what we th- thought, you know, differentiated us, um, to our community. And I remember, I think it was just on a call afterwards, Grumpy and I, uh, Lucas and I were talking and. I, I think I suggest, you know, why don't we try and make this a thing? Like it's such a great encapsulation of our values and our, our value prop. And we didn't do much, right? Like, I don't think we ever tried to push it, but we kind of teased it just by putting hashtag real yield, you know, on a few posts that, you know, we were writing anyways, and that's kind of all it took, which, which is interesting. It, it suggests that there was kind of a hunger for that. Right. And again, this was in the wake, you know, not just the different own forts collapsing, but a lot of different ponds was blowing up. And then after the market started to slide, um, you know, sort of second quarter, third quarter of, of the year, um, I, I think people were really, really frustrated with sort of, um, you know, unsustainable value, sort of, you know, value that vaporizes. And so, you know, I, I guess what, what I would say is. It, you know, it took off on its own after that point, again, because there was that interest in it, a lot of different projects, um, started claiming, you know, oh, we have real yield that became sort of ubiquitous, tons of threads um, on Twitter um, or, you know, blog posts would say, well, let's look at all the different real yield protocols as if there were a specific definition to what that is. Right. Um, and I think what's going to be interesting, and this might be a topic for a different conversation, but what's going to be interesting is you know, eventually seeing that definition take on kind of a much more specific and narrow meaning because they're, you know, one, I was reading a post, I think it was by uh, OX Sammy, redacted, he made a, you know, a good point that there are projects that their real yield is they, they emit tokens to raise ETH, which they then shut out the door, you know, to their stakers Well, that's just a Ponzu by another, you know, another structure for the same type of Ponzu, ponzu extra so steps. Cool. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know if it sticks which i hope it does cuz i think it you know the fact that we're talking about it's good for the sector um that it needs to now start having a bit more of a rigorous definition so that it doesn't become mm-hmm. susceptible to any any old just claiming
1: that it, it is this thing that it's not
0: yeah mm. so so, so, we're so for the um- viewers um- um, yeah. go, as a go quick
1: ahead. question so, so for the viewers at home how does umami deliver real yield and and what is that definition
3: that's a great question. Um, so here's the, the key sort of the the foundation of any claim to be providing real yield, um, at least in, in my view, you have to have a value of added product that and, and some fee mechanism or other similar mechanism that allows you to capture, uh, that value as protocol revenue, right. Which can then be passed on to your holders. Um, I would argue pretty strongly that, you know, that, that protocol revenue and those fees, they absolutely can't be in the native token, right? That's sort of by, by definition, you're not, you're not held accountable by the market if, if that's what you're emitting. So, you know, ideally you're capturing, you know, some sort of, sort of fee revenue or other form of revenue, um, in, you know, from stable coins in the form of stable coins or ETH, some kind of blue chip uh, cryptocurrency that you know, you're, you're passing back to your holders. And, and crucially, if you have built a value additive product on chain, then there's scalability to that, right? Then, you know, real yield doesn't necessarily mean you have to be some sort of established cash flow generating protocol in the way that, for example, GMX is. But, you know, in the case of Umami. We've built, you know, a, a USDC vault, um, which we can talk about later, but you know, it's a hedged vault, um, you know, providing sustainable yield, around 20% APR, um, and more or less market neutral. Right now there's only four million in TVL, but there's a lot of scaling potential in that. So, you know, unlike emissions, right? Where as TVL scales, that emit that stream of emissions gets you know more and more diluted over that larger base. It's real yield and it's tied to a scalable product. It's going to go the other direction. That one, you know, token that you've staked should start seeing a, a richer and richer stream of payouts. So I think that's also a really key conceptual feature of it as well.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask what have been the real yield strategies that Umami has done, what were the ones before the GOP vault and now like, now this yeah. is the flagship one.
3: Yeah, this is the
0: flagship. I mean, to
3: be clear, right. Umami is still early stage it's sort of. It's interesting, actually, when, when I hear people assume that we have sort of a longer history than we do, it's nice. It's nice that people are assuming that this USDC fall is our first, you know, real product and, you know, we established the precedent of paying out, um, you know, non native tokens, specifically ETH to our holders, um, sort of shortly after I took over. But at the time that was really, you know, we were, we were moving away from being uh an own fork. So we immediately took the pile of assets that were just sitting in our treasury and, you know, put them to work in sort of the most attractive, you know, yield generating deployments possible on a risk adjusted basis, which turned out to be, you know, providing liquidity to the GMX exchange uh and hedging using um derivatives from a partner project to bars called Tracer. And we started immediately ca- get, get generating, you know, revenue in ETH just from deploying our assets and passing that back to our holders. But that's not a strategy, right? That's, you know, that's allocating, you know, treasury assets that you raise through bonding isn't um, the same as having a real product. What ultimately happened was that, you know, as we were looking at sort of what can we do that makes some meaningful eco- uh, impact on the ecosystem um, and add something to Arbitrum, right, we realized that sort of that. That knowledge of, you know, how GMX and it's sort of GLP liquidity provider token work and how TracerDAO works. Um, you know, that served as the foundation for ide- our idea for this USDC vault, which we only launched two weeks ago. And that, that's our core product. We have a stacked pipeline now. We've hired, um, hired about half a dozen devs overseen by our chief technology officer. Uh. Um, Prefop is just really excellent. Uh, so we're going to be shipping many more vaults, but the USDC vault is what we have live now.
0: Oh, uh, so you had your own, like, I guess, like Dow strategy, like with your own mm-hmm. internal treasury, it was like, wait a second, we're getting yield from this, what if we expand this to be like a general product? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and yes, you go ahead. Get... I-, I just wanted to ask Lex,
1: like, does the real yield mantra also apply to umami's like dow treasury holdings like are you also not participating in any strategies that would involve you know inflated dilution you know emission and all that perversion of real yield or are you holding yourself accountable and only yeah i'll i'll share some thoughts on that and What I'm about to say, it applies to our
3: Dow treasury, but it also applies to basically every product strategy we'll develop, which I think is more interesting. Right. I mean, we have $6 million Mm -hmm. in our treasury and that's just our runway to build stuff. Um, but you know, for all of our products, the USDC vault and everything else we're going to launch, this is how we think about it. You have to have real yield as the foundation, right? If, you know, if you look at GMX and I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but you know, that's sort of the foundation for our current vault. Um, let's say that, you know, providing liquidity to GMX generates 30% APR, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in a typical example for them is that maybe 20 to 25% of that is ETH from platform feeds, right? So that, I mean, that is, Mm -hmm. and as the transaction volume on that exchange grows, um, you know, that, that. Revenue streams going to increase, right? So that's a really strong foundation. Now they choose to also, I don't even think they need to do this, but they choose to incentivize it with, uh, escrow GMX emissions, Mm -hmm. right. Which can be restaked for more ETH. And and that's great, right? We're not going to say no, but that has to be upside, right? And I think that's, you know, we would never build a vault, a strategy vault or any other DeFi product with emissions as the base yields, because eventually that emission stream will either diminish as TVL scales, or it's just going to get cut off, right? The is going to vote to stop, you know, emitting the token. And then what? Then you have nothing, right? Whereas if you're doing the opposite, we kind of think of ourselves, even though these are vaults for other people, it's not with their own capital, you know, think about how a venture capital fund makes these strategic bets, right? That over time, all of them scale up and become huge cash cows in the future. And that's how we're thinking when we build a vault, you know, on top of real yield, like GMX, is that as Arbitrum takes off that, that will only becomes more valuable and more attractive, you know, both for depositors and for the DAO. So that's, that's much you know, more our preference.
0: Got yeah, it. You okay. said you guys have a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, and also like one thing I've noticed is you guys are revealing yourselves. You know, this is Lucas's is yes. coming out. Um, you've been known for a little bit. Um, so can you give us any hints of like what you guys have in store in the future? Yeah, we have a lot. Um,
3: so I'll share what is near term and I'll tease what's coming up beyond that. Ooh. Um, near term is take, you know, this core strategy you have, uh, without getting too technical, um, we found that, you know, the same basic, uh, you know, smart contract, uh, code and, you know underlying, you know, partner projects that we use for the USDC vault. They can be repurposed into two other, um, vaults pretty easily, right? So we're building a vault that where the deposit token is ETH, the yield is in ETH. And, you know, whereas the USDC vault is designed to be approximately market neutral, right, to replicate USDC, um, the ETH vault would track the performance of, of the Ethereum token, right? And we're going to do the same as well with Bitcoin. Which by the way, I mean, we're, we're really pleased with the fact that we sort of developed this. Like I don't, I don't think any one person deserves you know all the credit, but the ability to deposit Bitcoin and potentially get 20% APR in Bitcoin on it. Right. And then to withdraw and then get, you know, your Bitcoin plus yield in BTC is, is pretty phenomenal. That's a very, it's very hard to find, you know, anything above losing. Is this WBTC
0: or regular btc yeah it would be wbtc yeah okay so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um
3: and likewise for eth so you know basically to, to kind of frame our our overall product strategy right because in this respect we do think a lot more like a traditional startup we try to think about things like you know target market product market fit for example um we want to bridge We want to be the bridge between DeFi and institutional capital and not just crypto hedge funds. I think all of us, you know, I love crypto hedge funds. I have a lot of contacts there. Um, I think most DeFi protocols have crypto hedge funds who are investors. The total, um, AUM for crypto hedge funds is $4 billion. That's really small, right? That is not a large enough market to build a substantial project on top of. So you have to penetrate into what you call sort of crypto curious institutional capital, right? So that would be, you know, family offices, pension funds, and, you know, alternative asset managers who are willing to have some allocation of crypto, but are not DeFi savvy by any means. And for that market, basically from what we've learned, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and stable, specifically USDC, but probably also FRAX as well, for example, that's pretty much all they're comfortable with, right? So every strategy that we're building is going to be basically BTC, ETH, and stables. we're not even. You know, playing around with, um, you know, liquid state deep you know, wrapper tokens as the primary input output token for these vaults. It has to be very simple. So we're going to have those three core vaults. We, you know, have a number of, uh, sort of follow on strategies to those core vaults that allow them to be, you know, considerably more scalable. Um, GMX will not be our only yield source, put it that way. Um. But what we're really excited about, and this is something where it's a little bit of alpha, what I'm about to share. But what I'll, what I'll share with you guys is, you know, we, we quickly realized that, you know, the biggest problem with DeFi and it's, it's somewhat circular, right? We, we want to onboard institutional capital to bring new TVL into the space, right? But we can't onboard as much institutional capital as we want. Because it's hard to build a vault that can absorb hundreds of millions in TVO, right? You end up diluting your underlying yield source. So there's only so many areas one can go in the greater Ethereum DeFi ecosystem, uh, to access really significant yield. Uh, I'm sorry, to, to be able to, to deploy really significant amounts of TVO, right? To be able to absorb. The hundreds of millions you would want if you're onboarding institutional capital, and let's let's not kid ourselves. Right, nodes, ETH2 validator nodes are sort of the most obvious place to go in terms of pure TVL scalability. There's tens of billions locked mm-hmm. already. We could, you know, a billion dollars in TVL for us would be game changing, and that wouldn't make dent in you know the the universe of uh, of ETH stake to nodes. So. Not going to get to the mechanics of our product strategy. We it's, it is not just another wrapper token that's been done. There's no point. Um, it is more institutional capital focused. It is going to be put in a pretty unique regulatory wrapper that I think is going to differentiate us a lot. It's the reasons we're doxed. is because we have a pretty, um, pretty creative, uh, Legal and, and compliant strategy that's going to allow us to hit these markets. So that's going to be what we're doing next once we complete those BTC and USDC vaults hmm. that we just described.
0: Yeah. What will it take to get a, a frax vault? I think we're talking it. Uh, <laughs> I think we're talking <laughs> short, <laughs> yeah, that's so true.
3: We'll find out, right?
0: Yeah, that, that is true. Coming up, um, yep. there's, I think that'll be like interesting in expanding uh, the use of Frax as, uh, you know, yeah. get yield on it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and For actually, facts. I mean, I would be very interested.
1: Mm-hmm. What? no. no, no. I, I just wanted to say, we oh, like, You are a man it, after my own heart when you say that we need to go after <laughs> like n- other institutional like sources Absolutely. of capital. And everyone talks about like the DeFi Dgens, the DeFi Dgens. I'm like, you know, that is like the tiniest drop in the bucket, right? I I, I did right? an analysis of, of like the top ten. In a university endowments, if you just manage their cash position, right? Only if you only manage like yeah. 2% or half of their cash position, you're already at the 10 billion mark. And I'm talking about like the Harvard, Yale, and et cetera. And that's just their cash position, right? And we could process withdrawal within 24 hours. The, the only thing that would slow us down is your swift banking mechanic. We can get you right. off chain immediately. So there's this huge, huge market there. Yeah. Um, and Inst-
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am really glad he brought that up. Right. I mean, DeFi has been cannibalized. There's so much we could talk about on that topic because DeFi has just been cannibalizing the same little pool of Mm gen and whale TVL for years now. And I think that the, the, you know, it, it was such a thing for projects to be almost purposefully complex. Right. And so much of that is because it's, everyone's kind of pitching to this like overly Crypt DeFi savvy market to try and steal a little bit of TVL share. And you just start iterating further and further away from what would be super saleable to like, you know, a trillion dollar total addressable market, which would be like, oh yeah, depot, you know, USDC, but with 7% APR, right? Like that, you know, very simple value propositions would be far more useful for expanding DeFi.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually wrote about this earlier or mentioned this earlier in the year um, bridge phi. this is what I call it. You know, what are those links between, you know, the world on chain to the outside world and like what's going to like connect that outside world capital that is curious about it that wants to get get in on the action, but you just don't have the proper rails and don't you know, have the proper measures. But like once like those proper regulatory like frameworks are in place, then boom, it's off to the races. Yeah. and. Who knows where that can lead with all that new mm-hmm. money.
3: In fact, I, if, uh, if you'd like, I can share a little bit of additional alpha that connects to this, that will be the first time I've dropped it. Would that, would that interest you? I think yeah. we like the alpha. Uh, a little bit. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hit, Hit it with it. it. Just a little bit. <laughs> I can't, I,
3: I never heard jokes. So that was, I used to be DeFi alpha, but anyway, um, Okay. So, I mean, Dave, you're close to frack. So, I don't know how you guys will feel about this, but, you know, we think that there's room for many, many stablecoin projects. We are in, in very, very early stages of, you know, getting to know uh, the team over at Circle. And obviously, this is an interesting time to bring it up and light up the whole Tornado Cash thing. But step back from that, right? Think about their role as an on ramp, right? And I think one of the things that's done, un- underappreciated about circle. It's not just about the USDC coin. It's about the circle account that they've built, which is this incredibly seamless, you know, um, sort of, you know, frictionless and sort of ultra liquid on-ramping system for fiat to, you know, to USDC that, you know, they can pipe out to mainnet, to any L2. Um, and because they are very much, CeFi, CeFi they have a really strong role of institutional capital relationships, right? I mean, they represent um, billions of, of AUM already just from their client base. So, you know, we've started getting to know them. There's nothing, you know, formal in the works except that we'll actually be the first and this, we haven't announced this yet, but we, uh, Umami Labs are the corporate entity that, you know, is affiliated with Umami, has been approved for a Circle account and it's kind of the beginning of, you know, hopefully starting to build a really cool relationship. That's going to allow us to work with them as an intermediary, both from a marketing and sales channel perspective, but also from a regulatory compliance perspective, right. To reach that whole universe of, you know, non-DeFi data, you know, institutional capital that they're already in touch with. Right. And so I, I think that. You know, it doesn't, whether it's Circle or someone else for DeFi projects that actually want to break out of that sort of crypto Twitter bubble that we've been trapped in, finding partners that understand DeFi and TradFi and, you know, probably would fall into the CFI category is really, really crucial. So we're pretty excited about where that can go. What, um, what it
0: exactly is, for people that don't know, what exactly is a Circle account? It's like Circle of Bank and you open a, an account there or you know, is it different?
3: yeah i don't want to speak for them but it would include a uh on-chain wallet it would also include a fiat account
0: it would include the on ramping you know directly on a chain this is like getting like whitelisted yeah. at circle the equivalent of that yeah <laughs> that's how i in my DeFi manner um yep yeah oh so that's cool. congratulations well, yeah, yeah dude that does t- not mean we won't work with frax though we like frax too we like the frax yeah no i think yeah. like you need a balance of that on off ramp, which is circle. And then that purely hundred percent on chain, stable coin, which is frax. Yep. You don't, if you're relying too much on, especially a centralized, actually like circle, you get a tornado situation. Exactly. But like, Yeah. And that's why it's important. You have like different stable coins. Like we were kid, me and you we were talking in the last episode, like mm-hmm. it's gonna be like one size take all. It's gonna be a few different ones. I think yep. it, like my theory is gonna be like, take all at different levels. And so like, we I think do. FRAX is going to take all on the on-chain level. Circle is very strong at taking all of them. Like the fiat on off-ramp level. Um, yeah, yeah,
3: I think that's exactly right. I also, I hope that both FRAX and Circle recognize that, you know, they have a synergistic relationship with one another. It's not competitive because yeah. FRAX is oh, of yeah. course backed by USDC. So circle mm-hmm. benefits as FRAX expands. Circle is great because somebody needs to take the hit and be more centralized in order to get regulators to kind of allow them to get integrated into say. Retail payments, right. Or, you know, retail banking. And, and we want to see that level of mass adoption. And then you also want to truly decentralized stablecoin. stablecoins. So it seems, you know, very complimentary.
0: Yeah. Especially with Frax BP, like talk yeah, about the logistic relationship. See. Yeah.
1: Random question. Let's you know. What if you wanted to work m- with more of these institutions and CDFI and CFI clients and they look at the name Umami Finance and they feel like, oh, you know, I I, I want more of a Fidelity vibe or like, you know, some yes. old white men, old white men's name vibe, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like how are you going to provide I mean- that that sense of security
3: for them? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I, I, might argue, right. That that, that path started being paved, you know, back with, I don't know. I could think of a really silly name for, for a trillion dollar tech company, like Apple, right? Like how could anyone take that seriously? Oh. Right. Like, I feel like web two kind of paved mm-hmm. that path already. Um, and so that will be familiar. if anything, Umani is kind of, you know, less silly than you know, a lot of, a lot of very well-known web two names. Um. But building institutional trust is huge, right? I mean, that is central to why we doxed. That's why you're looking at my face. and calling me Alex mm-hmm. as a DeFi Alpha. It's my a non-avatar of a waifu. <laughs> um, and you know, having a real legal entity, um, having a you know, chief legal officer with the you know, securities law background. I, I will say, you know, our executive team is overall probably about a decade older on average than, you know, most DeFi teams. And that's not to say that, you know, needs to be the case, but that probably in practice does help. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and then again, I think the truth is that there is a fascination with DeFi, um, along, you know, traditional financial institutions, they think there's something there, they don't know what it is. And there are very few projects that are doing anything that, you know, a TradFi institution could even remotely approach or understand or partner with, right? And so once you get across the line in those areas I mentioned, um, of a legal entity and a docs team and, you know, more seasoned professionals who can kind of present things in a way that's recognizable, uh, and trustable to TradFi, then it's amazing how quickly, you know, it's like being magnetic, right? Because it's, it's still fairly unique and they do want exposure to the DeFi space.
0: Yeah. How do you balance um, this this path that you're taking? It sounds, seems like you're t- walking this tightrope in a sense. And on one side is, you know, you're building out your bridge you know, kind of mm. sector of Umami with Umami Labs, these relationships, circle and whatnot. And on the other side, you have this DeFi native part of Umami that had, we you know where it came from with Arbus and Chems and also like, culture of it, a culture of DeFi and on-chain and being degen and yeah. whatnot, that degen ethos, like, how do you balance that out right. like out, and make sure that, like, you don't tilt too much towards one way?
3: That's a really good question. I'm glad that you asked it. That's probably, um, for me personally, that's the question that just kind of, you know, philosophically is rolling around in my head most more than anything else. And, you know, part of that's because I'm not just attracted to this as a money-making venture personally, right? Like I chose to defect from the corporate world and get involved in DeFi because I authentically believed in what it was building. I've been having these conversations, you know, recently Mm -hmm. with a number of people. Um, so here's, here's how I think about it, right? All too often you cope with an innovation, you know, like DeFi that has potential to be transformative, right. And to, you know, really powerfully address a lot of, you know, major social and economic problems that people have been talking about for a long time. But because it is so caught up in this kind of you know, purism, both in terms of its team structure, in terms of you know the the nature of the projects, and you know its sort of insular culture, you only end up reaching a tiny number of people, right? And then what good is that if you actually believe in DeFi? Don't you think that you know trustless, permissionless, decentralized smart contracts, you know, backed up by you know mainnet Ethereum security? Should be at the center of you know transactions that you know everyone does right not just a few you know crypto twitter dgens and to get there you know that's where you need that's why and this is i'm obviously biased but like this is why i love umami is that we are this odd hybrid we are crypto native right we emerge from it in non project, you know, it was an owned fork with, you know, waifu memes as it's a marketing strategy. <laughs> but, you know, we have also a lot of people who have deep TradFi experience, you know, at a pretty senior level. And, you know, I think that we're, you know, the truth is like CFI in many cases, it can't do what we're doing because it just doesn't know, right? It's people who just, you know, I don't know, they, just got out of an NBA, or they just, you know, left uh, web two or TradFi and they don't have that DeFi native experience. So, you know, we can build true, you know, DeFi smart contracts and, and understand what that means, um, and create off chain regulatory compliant legal entities with the docs team that can, you know, market it to institutional capital. And that's our goal. And I, it's really important legal. Like, you know, we don't at the end of the day that what. DeFi can live without some of its meme culture, although I like it, right? Like, that's not what is central to who we are. It is the, the technology itself and the ethos of decentralization as well. And I think that Umami can advance those things and not sacrifice it at all, but also reach a much, much larger uh, group of people.
0: Lucas, what well, do you thank think? You.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. We definitely i think at least from my experience in this space, have definitely been one of the the pioneers of of making this tra- transition from from one extreme to the other um but we do we do a pretty good job of keeping the keeping the vibes going in discord and stuff like that uh, all the time I mean we're in there twenty four seven you know talking with everybody some hanging out just kind of vibing in the discord, so I feel like we do a really good job with that in the it's very, we used to have, like, I don't know if you guys are too familiar with Discords, but NSFW channels and stuff like that. Like, that stuff needs to go with with the with the <laughs> road we're, we're heading in.
0: Yeah. It sounds like then, you guys are growing up a little bit mm, with this real yield path. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I wanted to ask Lucas a, a bit more because, you know, you are the community manager. And how do you feel about this move towards more, you know, getting rid of the nsfw channel and kind of like growing up per se a little bit
2: and how does your community
1: uh, how would you think the community
2: would feel personally it's been a huge change for me i mean i i was definitely the one extreme now to the other i i like where we're at now though i mean it's been a great experience for me i mean the professionalism is something that i enjoy nowadays um but the community's response has been extremely well. I mean, I don't think there's been much pushback. There's been a couple people who have been you know waifu lovers and, and gotten gotten mad in the Discord when a few profile pictures have changed. but uh, overall, I think everybody has has understood that for umami to to go to the next echelon of of, of TVL and everything like that, if we want to onboard all this CFI, then um, it's definitely the way to go. It's necessary.
0: Yeah, what are some of like the core cultural concepts you think that are like non-negotiable though? Of like this, like can't change. Um, i like, oh, for both of you, uh, definitely like sharing alpha in the Discord. You know, doing
2: that kind of stuff. Um, you know, talking about other projects, what 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 they see interesting in the space. That that can never change, in my opinion. Um, even if it mm-hmm. is a, a more degenerate protocol that you're kind of letting other people know about them. Um, I uh, everybody's going to always have a taste for something like that. So, I mean, it's definitely an appetite that needs to mm-hmm. be filled.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess, you know, if we're talking about, you know, just cultural, you know, features of the Lamia and I'd be curious sort of to, to hear your thoughts as well, mm-hmm. Lucas, but like, you know, one thing that is true, like, even when we were talking about real yield, that, that was not conscious marketing on our part i'm not saying we would never do an advertising campaign or something that at some point but i i do feel like one thing that umani's had going and you know its team and community have going for it is that we if, if DeFi you know sort of on the protocol level it's supposed to be censorship resistant i've also felt that you know that ethos does influence kind of the the attitude of our team we don't have you know completely sanitized profiles even though put my, you know, my photo up my actual name, I think that, you know, everyone on the team still, still speaks freely. The discord still feels like a lively place. People don't, you know, pause in terror before, you know, making making a joke that they authentically think is funny. I, I do think that we still have, you know, kind of life to us. That is sort of, it's like the cultural expression, right? Of what web three is about. And, you know, you can become more successful and professional without losing that. Entirely.
2: Uh, do you, do you feel like that's been true, Lucas? Exactly. And back to your point with real yield. I mean, I think we, we maybe threw it up in our Twitter bio and maybe a couple yep. of tweets and, and that was pretty much it talked about it in our discord and our community really are the ones who pushed it. Like they, yeah. they are the ones who took it to the next level and all their Twitter posts and stuff like that. So definitely big ups to them.
3: Our general chat, and you can really speak to this Lucas, like the, the general chat in our discord is not a marketing channel. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's much, much more sort of peer to peer and multi-directional than that. It is still just a place where you hang out with our community and, and somehow we have managed to hang on to that even as we've, you know, moved in this, this direction, which I'm really happy about.
2: Yeah. I I guess the perfect way to put it is, is that it's all really organic. Like the origination of real yield, what Umami's kind of pivot was, it's all been very, very organic.
0: Yeah. Um, where do you guys see DeFi in like three to six months? And where do you, where do you think frax as a protocol can position itself? to like take advantage of where the trends are going.
3: Okay. Um, it's really an interesting question. Three to six months. I think, and you know, we already saw it just yesterday with tornado cash. I think compliance is going to be a theme. I think that the, I think that the myths that, you know, and Nolan, DeFi protocols are, are truly decentralized and sort of not at risk from, you know, the kind of thing we saw with, with tornado fash recently. They're not, you know, facing regulatory compliant or, or compliance risk. I think that myth is going to kind of, you know, lose, lose sway. Um, I think that, you know, combined with, you know, the death of ponzoos, um, you know, which we saw in just with the recent market drawdown. It's gonna lead to an environment where there's a pretty big shakeout, you know, throughout the space and, um, a lot of projects are gonna go under small number are gonna, you know, build much more seriously. And then I do think, you know, we're seeing this now I can speak to it firsthand. We're seeing the, you know, onboarding of, we're seeing the mass adoption of DeFi, but not through retail. It's not mom and pop, you know, aping around on Arbitrum. It's through institutional capital onboarding. So that kind of. You know, the, the shaking out of all of the subpar projects and 90% of them were just made to make money quickly. Like we know that, um, you know, 10, you know, the the 10% that are serious and that are willing to develop some kind of compliance strategy in most cases are, you know, really building seriously and focusing on things like real yield, like we've talked about, you know, having real business models, uh, and then seeing that institutional capital uh come into the space that's going to be probably the biggest theme over the next six months uh in my view frax um i will comment on your your regulatory compliance strategy i think that's going to be going to be quite interesting um you know i I obviously right we just spoken about the fact that you know frax still you know heavily backed by usdc so you know that I think all of us need to acknowledge we have our centralized fail points that, that we are exposed to, and we need to have a strategy for dealing with that. Right. Um, and we need to figure out how do we succeed at what we care about, you know, while doing that. so I leave that to Frax. Now, that being said, I think that the real critical thing that has to happen here over the next three to six months. Is that as we institutionalize, as we professionalize you know, get regulatory scrutiny on board, institutional capital, we still need to remain DeFi. That's non-negotiable, right? We need decentralized alternatives. We can't just give over to CFI or else there's no point having gone on chain in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that is, that's where fracks can thrive, right? If If fracks just as a, as an example could come up with a regulatory strategy, you could do what Umami Dow did, right, be located in the Caymans and, you know, not actively market to the U S but still have, you know, a decentralized censorship resistant stable point in circulation. Um, you've now kind of acknowledged the regulatory environment. You, um, done the ecosystem, enormous service by having an alternative to more centralized stable points, potentially, um. And, you know, I think that, you know, finding that, that position and figuring out how to deal with all these changes while still really, really remaining loyal to
0: what DeFi is about, it would be kind of a defining feature for all of us. I th- I think to, to respond with your, the Frax USDC yeah. backing comment, cause we do get that a lot, um, Frax is not directly backed by USDC, it's backed mm-hmm. by LP tokens from like curve and sure. Uniswap and, you know, the investor AMOs. And so Circle would have to blacklist those contract. Uniswap contracts, the contracts themselves, yeah. which would be detrimental to Unis Like basically DeFi would have to fail first before frax would go down. That's a really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then Sam okay. had a really interesting point in the telegram earlier about the maker PSM modules, which are basically isolated USDC vaults with <laughs> what they're swapping. And so hey. like circle can just target the psm module and that is like detriment that, and it's just uscc in there so that's like pretty detrimental it's not going to affect anything outside the psm module yeah so that's, that's like that's an interesting design choice by them um so yeah. It, yeah. i think and it's I, like I yet ripping. To... You, you know yeah. better than me so if you're uh, yeah your protocol but this this is why we have flywheel <laughs> yep. yeah to educate a big piece of, a big piece of it. Um. Yeah. I,
1: I know we're running up on the tail end here, but I'd love to get really deep into the Umami USDC flagship product. Could you, Eli5, and explain it to me, how it works for the people at home?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll explain it. I know we're getting close to the end, so I'll explain it as safely as possible. So the USDC vault is built on top of two partner projects of ours. And again, that concept of real yield is at the center of it um so it's primary yield engine right the source of the real yield is a decentralized exchange called gmx uh one of Arbitrum's flagship projects where we really like them um gmx has geez, i think they've generated 50 million dollars in protocol revenue denominated in ETH, right no no inflation for of their token for this 50 million dollars in protocol revenue from exchange fees and, you know, also trader liquidations since they launched. Um, and you know, they, they're growing really fast so they're scaling liquidity. So they have a need for people to provide liquidity to that exchange. And that's where our vault comes in. Um, if you were to do that, if you were to provide liquidity directly to GMX, you would be acquiring this token called GLP. That is kind of this unusual index of stable coins and also BTC and ETH and, and also a little bit of uni and a chain link. Um, and so obviously that's kind of a hairy asset in the eyes of a lot of investors. So, um, we came in and we built this vault where we offset the market Delta, right? The exposure to market volatility from the ETH and the BTC, um, that, you know, it's on there on their exchange and in their liquidity pool. Um, we offset that using Tracer Dow's perpetual pool tokens, which are these really interesting, um, permissionless, uh, hedging, decentralized hedging products that never liquidate. We don't need to get into the mechanics of that, but perfect for a vault like this. Um, so, you know, by, by, we developed a pretty unique model. We back tested it for, you know, we have 30 days of back testing data on it before we went live. You know, we, we, pretty much came as close to perfecting our hedging strategy as possible for this vault. And as a result, we engineered something where you can essentially deposit USDC into the vault and we could do a frax version of this vault too, uh, Dave, but deposit USDC, uh, and it gets allocated GLT risk is hedged out and it remains, you know, pretty much attracts that market neutral performance of USDC. It is you know, not. Perfectly Delta neutral, but you know, within a percent, um, and it generates 20% APR right on this mark, you know, del, nearly Delta neutral risk hedged USDC strategy and crucially, because that is from the revenue from the exchange that APR is in USDC, so you put that, you know, positive USDC, one year later, you get your principal plus 20% APR in USDC. That's the goal of this strategy. So that's, that's what we've created and we're pretty, pretty happy with how it's going so far.
1: Got it. And that 20% yield comes from, you know, as if you deposited the GLP into GMX to earn that, you know, 30% and then you hedge away that Bitcoin and all the other, you know, market risk, which brings the yield down because yep. it costs the hedge and you kind of net out about yes, 20% it's is, is pretty much how yeah, the I, vault works. Yes.
3: Is that's beautiful. correct and what i'll add again you know as long as the foundation of the vault is real yield we're not opposed to some some token emissions just to augment mm-hmm. performance tracer's a really good partner of ours we have helped them more than double their tvl since we launched this vault, and so unsurprisingly they've incentivized it with tracer which we mm-hmm. market
1: swap for usdc tracer's okay with that right. so that actually uh, helps offset mm-hmm. the cost of pitching right and then you market swap the eth fees from gmx to usdc as well right Yes. Everything gets, if you withdraw, everything gets
3: collapsed back into USDC for you when you withdraw
1: Got it. I think the last piece of, um, this USDC vault that just makes it a, like a bona fide product is insurance. Cause you know, all yeah. the CD fire and all the C five people, like all this sounds great, but it always ends on the crux of how do I insure this? You know, always.
0: Yeah. Maybe if you have like some options protocol that comes out that can offer the insurance.
3: Yeah, so actually, we have insurance um, through uh, Risk Harbor, and we have, we're, Risk Harbor has approved us, and they're going to be launching an insurance vault on Arbitrum. In fact, um, it's another interesting thing to think about what stables could be used for that vault. Um, but you know, they've they'll be providing insurance permissionlessly where it pays out. You know, if if this vault were to drop below 0.95 USDC, if the the value gas up your deposit. Uh, it would pay out permissionlessly. So we're going to have that set up imminently as wow. soon as they launch their, uh, arbitrary insurance vault and then insurase is doing, you know, they're more, uh, they're a little more centralized. They're doing a, uh, formal underwriting process for us that should be done in several weeks. Yeah.
0: And are there any other strategies that new mommy's cooking up? Like, um, you know, do you see anything with options, protocols, yeah. do you see anything with like, you know, maybe even some ETH to you, like, yeah. Yeah. So look, we've thought about it.
3: We've thought about everything. Um, remember that we're basically just not going to build something if it can't scale to a hundred million TVL, cause it's just not worth it. Um, on many levels, certainly if you're onboarding institutional capital, uh, and we always want these very simple core, you know, blue chip, uh, token exposures, right, USDC, BTC, and ETH as the basis of all of our strategies, um, That being said, so on top of kind of these foundational vaults that I've talked about, the BTC, ETH, USDC, um, which by the way, they're going to be built on top of GMX, but, uh, TracerDAO is also launching a very similar exchange, so we'll have similar versions of the same vaults, but supporting Tracer's, uh, exchange liquidity as well. Um, we're also going to have a more exotic vault called a SKU farming vault. Um, it's. An important part of our ecosystem, because it provides liquidity to these tracer hedging pools that we use and the potential returns are very high. And it's, it's true Delta neutral because you're, you're not taking any specific, uh, bet on the market, but you're providing liquidity to either the longer short side of the pool, depending on where there's a need for liquidity. Um, we're very excited about that. I, I know tracer is too, cause it'll be really good for them. And then again, beyond that, I think, you know, going live with ETH2 node vault is going to be huge for us. That's going to be our key to, you know, massively scaling TVL, um, because it'll be able to absorb it and we have some pretty cool strategies that we we'll talk about soon. Um, and the only other thing I'll mention is we we're, we had a really cool conversation with, uh, uh, the labs with the AVAX team and, you know, GMX is also on AVAX mm-hmm. and there might be something to do there. So those are some things mm-hmm. that I'll share.
0: Lots of things in the pipeline. Yep. Very tasty. Much umami. (laughs) Much, much umami. Nice. Yeah. Should we do the lightning round now?
1: Yes, I would do that. Um, so normally at the end of these kind of pods and great conversations, we have a quick series of questions. And since there's both of you here, I'd love to hear both of your answers. When did you first touch the chain? What was your crypto virgin experience? Virgin crypto experience, sex don't count. Sex don't count.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I would have, it would have been mainnet. And it would have been me, you know, probably just trying to get the experience of bridging on chain and then being immediately wrecked by gas fees, you know, in, uh, in you know, early 2021, probably would have been the first time I
1: actually went on chain. Got hmm. it. What do you like to do off chain, like for fun, hobbies? I wish I had time for hobbies right now.
3: I've been working <laughs> 90 hours and whatever, you know, whatever fragments of self I once had have largely been given to DeFi, but, uh, yeah, I, I, used to, I used to run marathons. I used to 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 box just to, for more for fun at an amateur level. Um, and that's you know, but a lot. Yeah, again, I I haven't had time to think about obviously much in a while. So what's your favorite cuisine? Go for this thing. Although uh, a really good dry aged steak done, done properly is is very hard to argue with.
0: Yeah, are you guys coffee people or not? I'm massively. Yeah, <laughs> I, oh yeah, no, I, I would, I'm more of a
3: monster guy, although I will do, I, oh, I will do okay. Red Bull, but, uh, you know, Red Bull is kind of a scam because it's, not I'm joking, but like, it's not that caffeinated, right? So if you're going to go for an energy drink, I, I always advocate for monster or box yeah. yeah.
0: My, my personal favorite, actually, my guilty pleasure is the Java monsters, the coffee <laughs> monsters. They're, they blow Starbucks out of the water. When I was actually driving across the country doing like overnight drives, like, I just drink two of those and just like be amped up and, and they would like taste, they would like taste like coffee, but the, the Starbucks ones are disappointing. They just taste like sugar. It's just like, a but like Java monsters has that real coffee taste.
1: I've never tried that, but, but uh, um, I can what about you? <laughs> okay. I am coffee maxi. If I don't do coffee, I do the yerba oh. mate, but not the can, the actual tea itself, cause the can is just full of sugar, mm-hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. those are kind of two things that I kind of flip flop between. Uh, and then this, this last question to close it out here is if you weren't in crypto and working in DeFi, what would you be doing with your professional life? I mean, maybe I would be back in journalism in some form, I guess writing about DeFi wouldn't be an option
3: in, in, in this, but, um, maybe working independently as a journalist would be the closest
0: thing. Do you ever, do you ever see yourself going back to journalism?
3: No, probably not. Um, we'll see. I mean, I think what, what happens, right. The beauty of sort of what we're all doing is, you know, if you're sort of, if you're doing something completely original and new, like DeFi, you're always gonna have chances to kind of, you know, write about what you've learned and, and sort of share that with people, I'd like to keep doing that. I don't know if I'd be, be a journalist again, because why would I,
1: why would I do that? Yeah. Yeah. Lex doesn't want to write about All great right. man. He wants to be great man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this is yeah, been super fun for me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. This is a good episode. Thanks, guys. And episode, thanks guys. for staying awesome. stay true to the awesome. culture and pushing things forward. All right. See you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Peace. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Flywheel with Umami Finance with the Lex and Lucas combo. Kit. Reflecting on this past episode, what do you think?
1: I think they delivered. I think we gave a spotlight onto projects in the DeFi ecosystem and especially one on Arbitrum where FRAX really wants to grow. I think we did a good job on giving them their spotlight and for them to talk about what they're building, very excited on the path that they've chosen. And there's a quite a drastic shift from an own fork to an institutional product.
0: Yeah. Talk about a glow up. <laughs> Yeah, Could glow up. Yes. <laughs> and also, yeah, also, um, big announcement on the flywheel front. We are going to have our 60 K grant from the FraxDAO past. It should be huge for our future development. We really want to take flywheel to overdrive to become the destination for Frax, for DeFi, for stable coins. There is so much room for growth and I am really excited for where we're going to take this thing. We're going to keep the flywheel spinning. Um, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter and telegram at flywheel pod. You can follow me on Twitter at five Dave 22. You can follow me at zero X
1: capital underscore K and make sure you leave comments, likes, and subscribes for us to keep on delivering the content you want and help you harness the power of the flywheel. Peace.